Hello, everyone. This is Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. (laughs) It's good to be back. (laughs) We took a brief hiatus. Uh, For those of you who are otherwise uh, not in real time, it's been a little while since our last podcast, but we were in the midst of a uh, discussion, thorough discussion, on uh, substance use disorders according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And in addition to that, we were uh, looking at or have historically over the course of this series looked at treatment based on the American Society of Addiction Medicines uh, treatment. I call it the matrix. (laughs) They, They may disagree when it comes to level of care. Uh, And we have looked at multiple substances, uh, the most recent of which has been uh, cannabis. Uh, I did not save it necessarily for last, although uh, I do believe that of all the substances, illicit substances, and that's questionable, right? Whether to call it illicit substances now because cannabis is quite legal, and seems to be becoming more legal. So the idea that an illicit substance has some dimension of either legality or illegality, uh, if there is such word, or social sort of stigma attached to it, certainly cannabis um, is fast moving into or has already gotten to the point of such acceptance that uh, many states have uh, passed certainly laws uh, that allow the use of cannabis, the possession of cannabis. Uh, Many states in the United States have come to a point of also permitting the uh, uh, manufacturing uh, of um, (laughs) laboratory-grade marijuana, not only for medicinal use, but now for market, (laughs) open market, consumer. Uh, Go to the store and buy it, (laughs) sort of use. But the controversial aspect of that, and and some of the drugs that we have spoken of up to this point have included heroin, cocaine, nicotine, again, probably... uh, in the same sort of way as marijuana. It's uh, fallen out of favor, particularly the way that people ingest it, uh, smoking, uh, as with cigarettes, uh, and even vaping. Uh, Also, extreme uses of nicotine, um, as in now that you can vape it and you can buy cartridges, uh, people are using it in even greater excess, if that's possible, than when all that was available is smoking it. Uh, Yes, there were chain smokers. And for those of you who are uh, so much so young (laughs) and and really not familiar with all the jargon that went along with cigarette smoking, a chain smoker was one who continued to smoke throughout, I guess, their wakefulness, (laughs) as long as they were awake They were smoking, probably were smoking in their dreams or sleep too, but nonetheless, uh, they would light one up, as he used to call it, smoke, 
And before it was gone, they'd light another and the ashtray would be filled and, and you could go into their home, big ashtrays uh, full of uh, ashes and uh, cigarette butts. So if you're too young to remember that, for those of you who do remember that, you know what I'm talking about. And for those of you who don't, it is about as disgusting as it sounds, probably, if you're trying to imagine it. Uh, we may end up talking about caffeine because, like nicotine, uh, it is a legal substance, like marijuana has become, it is a legal substance. I'm not sure uh, we may end this series with uh, marijuana. But certainly the controversy when it comes to cannabis is most individuals would want to deny the very serious, I guess, health consequences, mental health consequences. THC, the active psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, is a psychoactive substance, which means that it alters your mood, your state of mind, mental being, from what otherwise would either be baseline or would be more situation or circumstance specific. There are times to be happy and there are times to be sad. Uh, cannabis, being a psychoactive substance, can alter one's mood. It also alters one's perceptions. And uh, with that, uh, <laughs> there's all sorts of not only perceptual distortions that can go with cannabis use, uh, including hallucinations, uh, but along the lines of psychoses, which would be hallucinations and delusions, too much <laughs> THC can also render you incredibly paranoid, which is a delusion. It is a thought that is not based in more than one thought. It's a pattern of thinking, a paradigm that's not based in reality. And uh, with that then, psychotic paranoia, someone is out to get me. Uh, someone is out to harm me. Uh, I can hear them, uh, include auditory hallucinations uh, along with that, and you have an active psychotic episode. How much does it take? Uh, a lot. But it's there. The potential would be there. But with that type of potential, that sort of potential, and then from our last podcast, we discussed some of the other physical sort of aspects of uh, the means of ingestion, uh, the way you get can uh, cannabis or THC in your body, as along with it, associated with it, uh, a number of health concerns. So it's not safe. We also spoke of it in context to development physical and psychological development, not so much with the adult, probably still, but not so much does it influence adult behavior or if there's a development that continues beyond the most intense ages up through adolescence, early adulthood. Uh, because it's not as intense, it's probably not as noticeable. Uh, it's not as problematic. It doesn't create as much Symptom or difficulty, 
and in that sort of way, uh, probably not very noticeable. Now, maybe when you get to the point of uh, sufficient age that you might begin to experience cognitive decline, uh, pot probably could accentuate that, make that worse, (laughs) which for those of you who are younger, uh, this explains it. That's why uh, older generation, particularly Boomers, I've heard it called Boomeroo. <laughs> I don't know if that's applicable uh, to what we're talking about. That may be specific to a, a particular problem. Um, <laughs> social dimensions uh, currently going on in our society, things that are happening. Uh, people don't like some of the perspectives that boomers have. But the idea, though, is that particularly of that generation, especially of that generation, uh, it explains why they're so hard to get along with sometimes, except on this common dimension of cannabis, if they should happen to be uh, hippies, <laughs> those who uh, back in the day used and probably throughout their life have used, maybe. Anyhow, cannabis has health concerns. And with that, today... On the podcast, I'd like to uh, take a look at particularly intoxication, what that looks like, uh, because we begin to see, at least in that aspect of psychoactive and along the lines of potential uh, brain dysfunction (laughs) disorder, uh, comparable to, comparative to the baseline, (laughs) your brain would otherwise work without cannabis, uh, I think this is a good place to start, or at least worthy of taking some time and uh, discussing. So what does it take, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, to experience cannabis intoxication? Well, one, it takes a recurrent use of cannabis. Two, or B, Clinically significant, problematic, behavioral, or psychological changes. Again, impaired motor coordination. Your motor function, (laughs) the way that your muscles are coordinated so that you might move, (laughs) you might react, respond, again, to the world around you, (laughs) environment. Situation, circumstances. There is impairment when you're intoxicated. Hence, there is a law, at least if you find that cannabis is legal in many ways, it's not legal if you're driving impaired. Along the lines, again, of psychoactive substances or mood, Clinically significant problematic behavioral psychological changes such as euphoria, which is an unreasonable high. It's not that you can't naturally have euphoria or that there's not a reason for one to be euphoric. It's just when you use cannabis, there's somewhat of a disconnect either in very actual literal terms, there's nothing going on that would precipitate that, or Likely the degree or extent to which you're feeling good, euphoric, is accentuated under the use of cannabis, THC. 
But what goes up also comes down. And with that, and even in the up part, I shouldn't say it that way, because that's probably not entirely accurate. But even in the up aspect of it, you can become anxious, which is not euphoric. It is energized, but it's energized in a negative, more worrisome or troublesome sort of manner. People who are anxious by nature should probably not smoke pot. And there's a certain percentage of the general population, if they do, they're going to run the risk of becoming more anxious. And depending on how severe the anxiety might be, again, baseline, that's probably not desirable, nor is it pleasant. You also may have sensory, in terms of sensation, per perception, a sensation of slowed time. Time goes slower. Now, they say that time is relative. They say that time is a psychological construct, so it makes sense. But if you're going a lot slower than otherwise everyone else, who does seem to be able to sync up pretty well in terms of this psychological aspect of perception when it comes to time, we sort of more or less within some range operate within the same context of time, you may be incredibly out of step, which could cause problems. The way our society moves and works, there are potentially detrimental, deleterious sort of consequences from being out of sync and particularly slowed. There's also impaired judgment with cannabis intoxication. And I think this is important before I really get into impaired judgment. How much does it take is, again, somewhat relative. Because we know THC has some degree of physiological tolerance, the more you have used it, the less high you're probably going to experience. The less the high. So your degree of impairment may change based on usage, history. But certainly, whatever the threshold is to become intoxicated, from that point on, the presentation is somewhat universal, and that's what we're speaking to. The DSM does not give us an amount because of the tolerance dimension, because of, just as I said, the body becomes habituated or used to the THC. So as much, again, you've used it for a long period of time, you're quite familiar with the high, you've never had too many really bad trips, highs, I guess acid would be more the trip, but bad highs, then you may be able to know where your threshold is or your limit. But there is an amount for the sake of driving under the influence. And with that, then, it is quantitative as much as a qualitative consideration. But when we get into the psychoactive sort of 
clinically significant problematic behavioral or psychological changes driven by the psychoactive dimensions or the actual brain impairment, the physiological dimensions of uh, use of THC cannabis, what we're getting to is that there is impairment. Again, judgment can be impaired, meaning your decision-making is impaired. Not only may your reaction time be slowed, which means that you could make a good decision, but you might be too slow in reacting and could have a negative consequence because of that. But you could also not only be reaction time slow, quantitatively, but in a quantitative way, your judgment might be impaired. You may not register it as threat because of its effect on the body's natural mechanisms <laughs> to make you aware of threat, to make you alert, to increase your energy levels so that you can either fight it or run away from it. Your judgment, maybe there's a correlation, maybe it's independent, as it's presented here in the APA, manual, DSM. But judgment and reaction time both are crucial to identifying a threat and making a good decision, which includes not only what one does, which requires you to think a little bit, and probably if there's a short amount of time to react pretty quickly, you're not going to react either once the decision's made with sufficient, I guess, real-time dimension to possibly make a difference between whether you hit another car, hit a pedestrian, run into a telephone pole, miss the curve, run a stop sign, run a red light, pass too soon, cut back in after passing too soon, whatever it might be. And that's just <laughs> driving your car. There's all sorts of other things that you could do that could equally be dangerous or have that level of risk attached to it. Cannabis also, when... At a level of intoxication, your system to the degree of intoxication resulting in intoxication can lead you to be socially withdrawn. Oddly enough, enough most people report they smoke <laughs> cannabis in social situations. It makes them feel more comfortable. They feel more relaxed. <laughs> but the further you go into intoxication... The more you disconnect with the world around you, the less social you're going to become. <laughs> and with that, though you may not have anything otherwise come out of that badly, other than getting left behind, if everybody becomes that way and they all decide to move on wherever you may be, they may forget about you <laughs> because they're really not attending to you in the first place or whatever. you're going to run the risk of social withdrawal. All of these changes from baseline, normal, develop during, during, shortly after cannabis use. 
C or three. Two or more of the following signs or symptoms developing within two hours of cannabis use. And again, another variable just come to my mind. We've spoken of it before, but the concentration of the THC2 has a lot to say with that threshold when you become intoxicated. Very difficult to always know where the line is. Increased appetite, dry mouth, tachycardia. The signs, number four, D, or symptoms are not attributable to another medical condition and are not better explained by another mental disorder, including intoxication with another substance, which, if you're going to smoke pot, you probably are going to be open and receptive to using another substance, and you may actually put those two together, chain them together like chain smoking, put them together and use them at the same time. And they may have some similar effects, overlapping effects, and to know which of the two substances or multiple substances may be rendering you intoxicated might be uh, challenging. So, where is the hallucinations and the psychoses? Well, here they are. It asks us, when we make the diagnosis, you as in the mind of a psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, licensed professional clinical counselor, to specify if, with perceptual disturbances, which are hallucinations with intact reality testing or auditory, visual, or tactile. Tactile would be touch. Illusions occurring in the absence of a delirium. You're not delirious, which is a completely different medical condition, but it can look a lot like delirium. For cannabis intoxication without perceptual disturbance, usually mild cannabis use is comorbid. Uh, for cannabis intoxication with perceptual disturbances, Again, mild cannabis use and more moderate, <laughs> severe cannabis use uh, is comorbid, which just means goes along with it, making the diagnosis. Now, again, you may say, well, okay, well, alcohol can do the same thing. You're right. And to some extent, so can nicotine. And to some extent, so can, as I mentioned earlier in today's podcast, caffeine. And all of those are legal. But to say that it has no associated difficulties is a misrepresentation. To say that it is safe for everyone to use it is also a misrepresentation. To say that no one becomes addicted to cannabis is a misrepresentation. To say that no one needs treatment for cannabis is also a misrepresentation. To say that cannabis is perfectly fine 
Everyone should use it. It's natural. It's organic. It won't cause you any trouble, problems socially. It won't land you in jail. It's just something we do to feel good. And there's no reason to be worried or concerned or even respectful of any of these possibilities. It's a misrepresentation. Uh, I personally have no opinion, nor should I, about whether you use or don't use cannabis. It's your choice. But if you come to see me with a problem, which is, again, the basis of all American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Disorders and Diseases, is how do you know? Because they cause you problems, but none more than substance use disorders. Then expect me to be quite candid with you, quite factual, quite truthful. <laughs> I, I love it. Follow the science. Just make sure you're empirical, <laughs> which just means you have to make sure that whatever science you're following is valid and reliable. There are so many individuals, scientists even, who have not done due diligence in terms of constructing their empirical methodology, methodology or way of measuring a phenomenon as to severely compromise not only the validity of the findings, <laughs> but the reliability in the sense of you can't even replicate it. It's a study. And, of course, we all know opinions are being passed as science, as fact, as truth, on uh, social media, the Internet, you name it, walking down the street. Make sure it is science and then follow it. The American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is science. It's valid. It's reliable. My opinions are predicated upon that as my primary source of objectivity. If I look at that situation and circumstance, yours, if you come see me with a problem, and I'm going to use that as the filter or the lens through which I examine you. This is the criterion. It's established empirically. It's evidence-based. <laughs> How are you going to argue with me? You can still argue with me, which we call denial. We've mentioned that before over these series of podcasts on substance use disorders. But denial doesn't make it true, except in your own mind. And if you happen to uh, co-op others to believe your, your lie, lying to yourself, uh, just because you say it's true doesn't make it true. I wanted to look at the symptoms again of cannabis withdrawal, just to emphasize, again, the notion that there is physical and psychological consequences that are problematic. 
One or A, cessation of cannabis use has been heavily, has been heavy and prolonged, usually daily or almost daily over a period of at least a few months. It sets up the tolerance. Three or more of the following signs and symptoms develop approximately one week after A. Irritability, anger, or aggression. One. Two. Nervousness or anxiety. Anxiety when you use, anxiety when you don't use. Sleep difficulty, including insomnia and disturbing dreams. It disrupts your sleep cycle. Disrupts your REM, particularly phase of sleep where one dreams, but where we believe a lot of psychologically restorative functions occur that helps us to cope with stress during our sleep. The world is closed off. We're in our own head, literally, but we're contending with matter and material without any extraneous or at that moment, input from the world around us, or too much. It allows us to focus. It allows a lot of concentrated effort. That's a better way to put it. You can have decreased appetite or weight loss. You can have restlessness, number five, psychoactive substance, tolerance if you feel euphoric, in context of withdrawal, not using, as we've discussed, and again, in prior podcasts, you're going to have the opposite depressed mood. At least one of the following physical symptoms causing significant discomfort. Abdominal pain, shakiness, tremors, sweating, fever, chills, or headache. Think of your worst experience with the flu or a cold, and that's withdrawal. A lot of those same symptoms. Cannabis withdrawal, THC withdrawal. The signs or symptoms, as we've just mentioned them, criterion B causes clinical significant, clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. You can't be doing, engaging in the normal activities of psychosocial life, even living existence in a physiological manner or way. Because these symptoms, the withdrawal symptoms, are interfering. And finally, the signs or symptoms, number, uh, number, not number, but letter D, the signs or symptoms are not attributable to another medical condition or better explained by another mental disorder, including intoxication or withdrawal from, again, another substance. So again, we've spoken of, last podcast, we spoke of with tolerance and withdrawal, and we spoke of some of these very same things, but I thought it would be important to mention them, to discuss them on today's podcast. Why? Because I want you to know using THC and cannabis is not safe for everyone. And it may not be safe for anyone any more than alcohol use 
It's not safe for everyone and may not be safe for anyone, especially if it becomes a use disorder, which then would imply not only are you having problems, but you can't stop using long enough to stop the problems. This is the warning. (laughs) This is what they put on the cigarettes. May cause cancer, even death. This is what they should put on all alcoholic beverages. Impaired driving. (laughs) Drinking while driving could result in accidents. Death. They should talk about that. Falls down steps. (laughs) Walking out in traffic. Getting into fights and being shot. (laughs) Where did that come from? Extremes. But it's all there. What I really want to do, though, is as much point out again that there are risks associated with use of cannabis. I'd like to get into then on our next podcast a discussion of treatment. But before I could go there, I have to establish it's a problem. Because if you don't believe it's a problem, then you're not going to seek treatment. And if you don't seek treatment and you continue to deny all of this, all this is not caused by cannabis use, you're not going to get better. Now, maybe it'll cause other problems that will need additional treatment. And you can get that treatment because... You don't see it associated with your cannabis use. But to really get better, you have to admit that you have a problem. And then you have to go see someone who can make an appropriate diagnosis, as well as formulate a sound, solid, empirical, evidence-based, not only diagnosis, but treatment plan. That's where, again, the American Society of Addiction Medicine's treatment matrix comes in. And rather than get into a portion of it on today's podcast and then have to stop, I'm going to hold off until next podcast. And as I mentioned last podcast, I would like to spend at least one of the programs discussing cannabinoids, which is don't throw the baby out with the (laughs) bathwater, which doesn't mean there's an exemption or exception to the use of THC. But it does mean that the cannabinoids that are part of, at least in more natural sort of regards, the plant has proven itself to be, miraculously so in many ways, quite a benefit. And to be fair in our presentation and to possibly offer alternatives to those of you who might be using cannabis with some of these needs that cannabinoids meet, take care of in terms of treatment, effective and helping and assisting with no known deleterious effects, uh, this is a good option. (laughs) Really, it eliminates, it does throw the baby out, but 
does it throw the bathwater out? Or vice versa, it throws the bathwater out, does it throw the baby out? That's the right way to say it. What it does is it leaves us with what maybe is the best that cannabinoids or, or pot could ever offer us. And we don't have to have the THC. Now, would that not be good? Maybe, <laughs> unless you just want to go get high. So, again, I want to thank you for joining me today on Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We post the email address. We love to hear from you. I will answer questions. You just have to email me. Uh, and should you want to see me, uh, you can certainly reach out at that email, and uh, we can see if it's possible for me to treat you uh, based on each state-by-state state rule and regulation when it comes to behavioral health services, regardless of psychiatry, social work, counseling. Uh, you have to be licensed in that state, and there's no universal licensure yet. We're working on that. I'll be the first in line or one of the first to sign up for it uh, because it'll allow me then to see you regardless of what state you're in. But right now, it's still state-by-state state jurisdictions that apply. And since it's hard to keep up with all 50 states and licensure requirements because they're different in each one, uh, I'm sort of limited in the ones that I have uh, pursued and, and established myself as independently licensed, if only because um, otherwise I couldn't keep up with it all. But you can still reach out to me, and I'll be glad to give you what advice I can in finding someone if it should be a state that I'm not at the present time or I am pending licensure in, independently licensed in. Uh, I'll be glad to try to find somebody to refer you to. Again, you're listening to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and would like to once again invite you back for our next edition. And thanks for joining us today.